God has indeed poured upon us his glorious love in the person of Jesus. And it is him that we come and celebrate this morning. We're going to do so hearing uh, from his word uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're a couple weeks removed from the beginning portion of this passage, but we're picking up today in verses 16 through 34. We'll pray, then we'll read the passage under consideration, uh, followed by an exposition of the passage uh, for our application. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, you are worthy of glory and honor and praise. Lord, uh, help our hearts now give attention to your holy scripture. Help us to understand how the gospel speaks to our secular culture. Help us to be those who warn people of their desperate condition, as well as communicating the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in us personally, help us this morning to cast down the idols that we have erected in our hearts, those that we serve in deed. Help us, Spring Hill, a a church, to live counter to the culture of the day in such a way as the kingdom of Christ would be compelling, that it would lead others to repent and believe. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you are able, would you stand for the reading of the infallible and errant word of God from Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin in verse 16 and go through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needs anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. You may be seated. So to give us some context this morning, Paul has left the Thessalonians, who 
turn from idols, as 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And also he has departed from the Bereans, those who were voraciously searching the scriptures to think, to see if what he said was so. In Acts 17, 11, you might recall, he said, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So here we are, Luke is describing now Paul's ministry in a completely pagan environment. In Athens, Paul presents the gospel to those who are idolatrous and to those who in their idleness, they produce nothing but idle talk of the newest thinking. And now, as we think about this passage this morning, I want us to think about this is not far removed. Athens is not far different from the communities that we find ourselves in. The culture that we live in is an idolatrous one. Our society sets up many objects of worship. You see, today, secular humanism is the religion of our time. The major idol of worship in America is the idol of self. Self-worship. Most of the ills that we find in uh in our culture, we could boil them down to the idolatry of self. The self defines and denies what is true in our society. The self in our society denies the existence of God. The self in our culture denies the existence of God so they can be free to worship themselves. If you deny the existence of God, something fills that void, and it is us. But if, if we start there, then we can deny God, right? We are uh, the self. The self is the most important thing. The self denies the existence of God to worship ourselves. The self denies human reason. The self denies even plain biological fact in our society so that we can give ourselves a self-defined identity. Because, after all, we want to worship ourselves. From the worship of self comes other idolatries, other idols, materialism and consumerism. What wealth and material and status cannot provide for ourselves in our culture is not anything that the self-worshipper desires. If it, if it doesn't increase me, I don't want anything to do with it. In the church today, we can be guilty also of idol worship, the worship of self over God. One of the ways that I was convinced that we see this is the forsaking of the gathering of the saints to worship the one true and living God for the sake of leisure. Leisure says that my time is for myself. And so therefore, I'm not convinced that I need to go to the house of God to worship. It takes the place of God. I've heard it said by a pastor that I know, I need my me time. Going further, one Sunday, it was a sunny, bright day, Come in, and I was very thankful to be in the house of the Lord, thankful to be worshiping, and I said so. And he says, if it weren't for the fact that I was a pastor, I wouldn't be here. Because I want to celebrate my me time. Well, I think what we need is not more me time. If that is our attitude, we need more knee time. Less me time and more knee time to get your priorities right. Time on your knees asking God to forgive you for worshiping yourself over him and to give you the right priority. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, as we just sang, and all these things will be added unto you. So here we are in Athens in this passage. 
In Athens, there was a blend of superstitious idolatry and enlightened philosophy. And Paul uses these insights of the philosophers in his attack on the beliefs of the Athenian people. See, the Epicureans would also attack superstitious, irrational belief in the gods that are expressed in their idolatry. And the Stoics stress the unity of mankind and its kinship with God together with the moral duty of man. What Paul does in this passage, you'll see that he sides with the philosophers and then demonstrates to them that they don't go far enough. He sides with them a little bit and then he tells them that's not quite it. You don't go far enough. So let us uh, turn our attention to dividing the passage uh, in some chunks and let's look at verses 16 and 17. Now while Paul Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul, uh, having been encouraged by his ministry partners to leave Berea, he sets sail and he lands in Athens. And the brothers have yet to join him. And Paul, what he does while he's there is makes a cultural assessment first as he waits. Paul's not out there looking for an argument, but he's looking to understand how he might speak into the pagan culture in Athens. And he is provoked in his spirit, it says. The Greek word parazuno is what he's saying. And it, it is, it means to be pained to the point of agitation and anger. So to be provoked in his spirit, he's pained. It, it, it hurts something in him to see this sort of idol worship going on in this place. And it stirs up a passion in him. And what he did then was, as his custom was, he begins to reason with the God-fearers and the Jews by going to the synagogue. But what he does here in Athens is quite different. In almost immediately and on a daily basis, outside of the Sabbath, here in Athens, he also goes to the marketplace to reason with whoever was, was there. The marketplace is known as the Agora, or marketplace as it is. It's a place for commercial exchange. It's a place where goods were traded. Uh, but it's also, in this area, it is the Agora is a marketplace of ideas. It is an informal court where judge, judgments among their citizens would take place. So here he is, and I'm thinking about this in our culture, right? In our culture, as, as we live in this sort of secular, humanistic society, um, we often don't get a voice in the marketplace anymore because the Christian worldview is dismissed out of hand before we ever start. But here's what I want to encourage us. We cannot be lazy and ignorant if we're going to have an influence on today's culture. We can't, because we're immediately dismissed, become lazy and ignorant. We can't be those who don't know what we know. We have to know. We have to know what the scriptures say. We have to know what our faith means to us. We also have to be knowledgeable about the culture around us so that we can speak into it. I'm not talking about being part of it. I'm talking about understanding it so that we can speak into it. We can show, uh, by understanding the thinking of today, we can show just how inferior it is to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to know something. And in some cases, we need to know it so well that we, we need to be able to speak into the insanity of what the culture upholds as moral and worthy. We have to be able to speak to the insanity that is going on around us. Is it not insane? Some of the things that the culture upholds right now? It, it's, 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 it's mental illness in a, in a cultural sense. To think that mutilating children is elevated to, to this is what we ought to be doing. It's insanity. It's insanity on a corporate level, on a cultural level. 
We need to understand what it is to speak into it, to show that it is insane, that it is wrong and it is unworthy. We, like Paul, can be pained to the point of wrath concerning the culture we live in, can't we? We can be pained to the point of wrath. But if we want to make an impact, we must understand it without capitulating to it. It's a fine line, isn't it? To understand, to speak into the culture and to understand what it is without capitulating to it. The woke church today, its aim, I think, began well. The aim was to understand the culture. And then it failed to overcome it because we've seen in the woke church a softening of the gospel and a capitulation to its philosophies. It has adopted them. We need to tone down the gospel so that they'll receive us is kind of the attitude. And what we've seen in that is that Mainline denominations like the United Methodists in America are crumbling into chaos. But it's in America, at least for now. The United Methodists in Africa are upholding biblical truth. They're upholding what the Word of God says. And there's this big schism because the American church has capitulated to the culture. At least... In that sense. And we're seeing now like the Southern Baptist Convention is wrestling with it. They're wrestling with these things. And yet some of them are capitulating to the culture and some of them are standing firm. I think soon we'll see a big schism in that organization as well. For now, they are slightly united. Because they're at least having the debate. They're at least having the discussion. But I think it's going to be those who capitulate and those who do not. I think the book of Revelation is apropos to that statement. Because when Jesus returns, will he find faith? That's his question. And then he comes and he comes to the churches and he speaks to the churches. This I have for you. This I have against you. I have found you less than faithful. I have found you capitulating to the world. I found you not standing firm in the faith. I think this is where we are today in our culture. And we need, we need God big time in this body to intervene on our behalf so that we don't capitulate. It's easier to go along to get along, isn't it? Just think about your own life and your own families. Sometimes we fail to speak the truth even in our own families because it's easier to get along, to go along to get along. When we speak the truth, we know that ah, there's going to be opposition. It's easy to capitulate. It's very hard to stand firm in the faith. But we have the power of the Holy Spirit to do that in us and for us. I didn't plan on this, but I think I want to pray to him right now. To do that in us. Spirit of God, we need your strength in this troubled time. That we would not compromise. That we would stand firm, trusting in the Lord Jesus in these troubled times, in this world we live in. Help us not to back down from the truth of the gospel, Lord. We need your power and your strength in us to stand firm in the faith in these times. In Jesus' name, amen. So here Paul is reasoning in the synagogue where God-fearers would be, but also in the marketplace of ideas on a daily basis. He's sharing or proclaiming with whoever happened to be there and listen. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul and the Epicurean philosophers have a point of agreement. Here's their point of agreement. 
The idol worship of the, Athene uh, of the Athenians is superstitious nonsense. Paul would agree with the Epicureans that it's superstitious nonsense. Yet they have a point of contention and that Paul advocates the right worship of the one true God, but they see all worship as superstitious nonsense. Epicurean philosophy emphasized the great virtue of pleasure and tranquility. If pleasure is the highest moral value and tranquility, peace at all costs, again, that's what causes us to compromise, isn't it? Is that our own pleasure, worship of self. Tranquility is also, if it's at all costs, if it's never telling the truth, peace at all costs without the truth is really, again, a turning in on yourself. I want peace with all people at all costs. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want it to be difficult for me. I want to make the path of life easy for me because me is very important. Again, I say if that is our heart, we need less me time and more knee time. We must pray and hope that the Lord of Lords will uh, transform our thinking and transform our hearts and return us to right priorities once again. Paul and the Stoics also have a point of agreement. All of humankind are united to one another in Stoic philosophy, and all of humanity have an, an obligation to live a moral and upright life. Paul would agree with them. But they have a pantheistic conception of God as this uh, pantheistic conception of God is that uh, the world is a soul that the, all things around them are God. Everything consists in God, right? And that God consists in everything, which is somewhat true. But not all things are God, are the Holy One, right? Their ethics stressed individual self-sufficiency and that obedience was to the dictates of duty. Again, it's about self. What they don't understand is the kinship of man. Yes, they rightly say that Man is in kinship. But the kinship of man is this, that they were all born in sin. The commonality of humanity is the fallen nature of humankind and their inability to save themselves, their inability to serve God rightly creates disunity amongst themselves and with the one true God. Listen to how they respond to Paul's proclamation of the necessity and the reality of Jesus' atoning death and God's resurrection of him from the dead in verse 18. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What does this babbler wish to say? Those who call him a babbler, in that culture to call a person a babbler was to compare him to a bird, to a bird that is a scavenger who goes into the gutter and gathers scraps. A person known as a babbler was a person with only scraps of knowledge. They would consider to call him a babbler is to say to him, you are a worthless loafer who claims to know some things, but you only know what other people have discarded. This is, this is their accusation. You're a worthless loafer who only knows what everyone else has discarded, has thrown away. This can be why in the marketplace of ideas in our age, our gospel proclamation is readily dismissed. I even heard yesterday on a podcast say that societally, They've, we have appropriated this thought. Now, I don't believe this thought. I don't believe this thought in myself. I don't believe this thought ultimately in everyone. But that the culture has adopted this thought. God is dead. They've adopted this thought that God is dead. That if there was a God and he existed, he's dead. He's no longer involved or engaged in the world because self is God. Self is God. 
this antiquated book confessing a God who is the God of all gods, who is the Lord of lords, that is antiquated, he's dead. That sort of thinking is dead and passe. It is refuse to be thrown in the gutter. And we who proclaim it are those babblers who have come along picking up scraps of knowledge that is that which the world has already thrown away. I think that some of us, pastors, have not thought deeply about what the gospel speaks into that culture. Some of us Christians have not thought deeply enough about what it is that is really the center driving the culture, the center of self. I think because in our own lives, we capitulate to it far more often than we would like to admit. Far too often. We capitulate to the God of self. We exalt ourselves far above God. And then we, as pastors become Pastors and Christians become uh, intellectually lazy. We think because they've dismissed us, because they've already said that God is dead in their minds and hearts, then we become lazy. We fail to understand the truth and the reality of what's going on, and so we don't speak to it. Because we're going to be dismissed anyway, right? So we become intellectually lazy. I think we become spiritually lazy as well. Verse 19. And they took him and they brought him to the Arapagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Oh, that verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. For others, the gospel in Athens was new and foreign. This sort of intrigued them. Luke concedes, concludes this section in sort of a sarcastic tone. This is Luke displaying some sarcasm here. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except hearing something new. They wanted what is new, what is fresh. These people have too much time on their hands. And in their idleness, they have nothing better to do than to spend their hours discussing and looking at the latest trends so that they would be the ones in the know. Does that go on in our culture today? That what is fresh and new, what is the latest and greatest is the thing that we must camp on? And that if you don't know what these new things are, you're just not with it, man. You're out of it. You don't understand the culture because you're not participating in it. You're out of it. You don't know what's new. These things have changed. I remember like even joking with my kids because I finally heard like some statement some time ago about things that people were saying, but I guess I was like years behind it when I finally said it to them. Like, you know, I'm going to use this and it's going to be embarrassing, but I'm going to say it anyway. Wow, your eyebrows are on fleek, Right? So I say this to my daughter, and she looks at me, and she's like, oh, dad, that's horrible and old. Old? I just heard it yesterday. How is that old? No. So anyway, we can kind of be like that, though, in, in also in church, too, right? I have some brothers, some friends, dear brothers who I know love the Lord, but they're always looking for the next best thing. The next best thing in the church. The next thing that is going to drive the culture of the church. And they're on it for about two weeks until the next new thing comes. And then when the next new thing comes, that is the thing that is going to transform the church. And now they're all into that. But I know that it's going to be short-lived because in two weeks they're going to do something else. Because something else is going to come along that is new. And they're intrigued by this newness, right? And this is the culture that is going on here in Athens, right? That the next best thing, we want to sit around and find out what it would be because we want to be the ones in the know. So as they, uh, as they approach Paul here, they, they bring him uh, to the Arapagus or what is referred to as Mars Hill. So it was a high place and it overlooks the Agora. 
So remember that the Agora is the marketplace. It is not only the marketplace, but it's kind of an informal court. It is really indeed like the court of public opinion. So they stand him up on Mars Hill that he speaks into it. And now here's all of the people gathered to give their opinion on what it is that he's about to say, right? To be his judge sort of informally. So they're there and it is the marketplace of ideas. It is, it is uh, the court of public opinion. Um, this is where they bring him to. So now I'm going to read a big chunk of 22 through 31, and then I'll kind of divide that. But the big chunk here is what, how Paul addresses the Arapagus. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he need anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually, uh, actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here's Paul's argument. God is the Lord of the world, point one. He doesn't need a temple or a human religious ritual. Number two, man is God's creation. Humans have a need for God's mercy and grace. Number three, God and man are connected and sin breaks the connection until the day when the appointed judge of man is revealed. Therefore, the conclusion he wants them to get to is idolatry is foolishness. The revelation of Jesus Christ will be either to eternal judgment or to eternal life. This is his ultimate argument. Now to break this argument down, Paul standing in the midst of the Arapagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. I see that you're a very religious people, he says, but what Paul is politely saying is judging from your objects of worship and an altar with an inscription to the unknown God, I perceive that you are a very superstitious people. You worship what you don't know. What you attribute to the unknown God is actually the work of the one true God who is knowable. I proclaim to you the God who makes himself known. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he need anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The knowable God, he says, is the creator God. I'm sure that Paul has in mind Exodus 20, 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Isaiah 42, 5, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The knowable God is the one who transcends humanity and cannot be confined to a place. He is the omnipresent God. Acts 7, 48, we read a few weeks ago, yet the Most High does not dwell in the houses made by hands, as the prophet says. 1 Kings 8, 27, but God, will, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much this 
less this house that I have built. Psalm 50, verse 7 through 15. Hear, O people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? The accusation against Jesus in Mark 14. We heard him say that I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Paul is arguing the Athenians should therefore conclude that idols are worthless. Compare your idols to the knowable one true God. Jeremiah 10, 5 speaks to the worthlessness of idols. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. And they have, they have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Paul then turns his attention to the uni unity of mankind and mankind's common condition, I will argue. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel the way toward him and find him, for he is not actually far from any one of us. Paul argues that mankind from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation can trace their lineage to God's first created man, Adam. And as such, we indeed do have communion with God as people created in his image and with one another as son and daughters of Adam. The problem, you see, is that man is united in Adam. All of you, all of us, have violated the boundaries set up for mankind by the transcendent God. Adam crossed the boundary, and we are all infected with his nature. You can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God would say, that tree is for me. It is reserved for me. And since God cannot look upon sin, now man cannot look upon God and live. So here he is talking about the God who is quite near but the God who is far and above holy. He is, he is both near and far away. He's close. He's always present. And yet because of sin, he's far away. Because he cannot look upon sin. And we cannot look upon God and live because we are sinful. And so the God who is near and is transcendent set up boundaries. Psalm 104, 5 and 9. He set on the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At your sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. And then God, in responding to Job in 38, Sort of, it reads sarcastically to me. Who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come no farther and here are your proud waves. How, the, how will they be stayed? Never forget that the God who is near and transcendent is holy. He is holy, H-O-L-Y, and he is W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. He's holy other than his creation. He is pure and perfect and without flaw. To draw near is to enter into the presence of the mighty, holy creator God. God is far above, and yet he is immediately present. God is far above, yet he is transcendent, and immediately he is present. Jeremiah 23 says this, I am a God, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and a God not far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? 
It's kind of this strange juxtaposition, isn't it? That God is very near, but very separate, very other. And I want to notice that he tells them, you cannot, cannot find God because you are groping. Although he's very near, you're groping about in the darkness, unable to find him. Though he's right near to you, you're groping about to find this God. And you certainly will not find him in something you created. That's what they do with these idols, right? Trying to find the God that they're groping for in blindness. But he's right near. He's right near and they can't find him because sin has blinded them to his presence. Let's look at verse 27. So he set up these boundaries that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not very, actually very far from one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your poets said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offering, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. God is not hidden, but he is transcendent. He's omnipresent. He's a God who is nearby and he's he's holy. Another thing that we must understand is that God is horrible. And I mean that. I I can see some eyes go, oh. He's horrible in that he's exacting and perfect and holy. And if you are not, and you are face to face with that Holy, perfect, pure God. It is horrible. It is horrible for you without Jesus Christ, without an atoning death for your sin, without some way for God to have made you pure and right. God would be horrible. See, you have, rec- he, you, you have been created in the image of God, Paul would argue. And in his image, you have distorted that. You have distorted the perfect image that God created you in. In him, we live and move and have our being means that we were meant to reflect the nearness of God by living as he prescribed. In him, we live and move and have our being. And he says to them, his argument is, and you would reduce... God to a figure of your own imagination, of your own creation. Again, Jeremiah 10, 5, I think sums this up. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. And further, he's going to go here to the end and say... A day is coming when God, who has appointed a man to judge you, that day is coming upon you. Notice what he says here. The times of ignorance, verse 30, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In our study a couple weeks ago, we heard Paul argue the necessity of Christ for the suffering of sin. We heard him further emphasize that through the resurrection of the dead, Jesus is declared to be both Savior and King, that he is Savior and Lord. Paul declares here that God by virtue of the resurrection, has also done something else. He has declared him judge. He has said he is the right judge. And in this passage, he says, God has fixed a day upon which this one who we proclaim to you has risen from the dead will come and be your judge. He's fixed a day. He's appointed the man. And the resurrection proves that he's the man. 
He once was dead, but God didn't leave him dead. God raised him from the dead, saying, This is your Lord, King, Master, Judge. He is the ruler of the earth. This is the one that you will one day answer to. He's assured us that Jesus is the man appointed having been raised from the dead. And he says, I would proclaim this to you people in Athens. The day is coming. The day is coming when you will answer. And one of the things that I'd like to think that he's saying there, that that it looks as though he's saying, times of ignorance in the past have been overlooked. But today, in your hearing, you have heard the proclamation of Jesus raised from the dead as Lord, Master, and King. And now, ignorance will not be an excuse. You've heard it with your own ears. You've heard the truth of the gospel with your own ears and you cannot claim ignorance. It's a heavy prospect, isn't it? We have probably family members who I bet that you guys have shared the gospel with again and again and again. And they have rejected it. One of the things you can be sure of is that ignorance will not be an excuse. And you can take comfort in this. That that's your duty, simply, is to say it. You say it, you've done your part. God does the rest of the work, you've done your part. You proclaim the truth, they're not ignorant. The one they answer to is the judge, the king, the master. They will answer to Jesus. They will one day, because God has appointed him. When that day comes, Jesus will appear in power He will not appear as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king to judge the church and the world. I want you to notice this. I want you to think about this. The one who has been appointed by God as judge, when he comes, when he returns, we'll talk a lot about this when we get to Revelation in a a month or so. Judgment comes to the house of God first. We get pretty concerned about what's going on in the world. Jesus comes for his church, comes to establish that he is the judge and the king of the church. It belongs to him. It belongs to him by virtue of his death. He died for her. God raised him from the dead and said, you are the judge and the master and the Lord of the church. It belongs to you. Listen to how Revelation describes the one to whom we all will give an account. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That doesn't sound like a suffering servant. It sounds like a conquering king, does it not? When I was face to face with him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. He was in the presence of his judge, his master, his Lord. Now, listen to the end of this. We'll conclude with this. When we proclaim the resurrection of the dead, Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection, is the judge, is the king, is the Lord, is the master of all humanity, and he will one day come and judge the whole earth. That's our proclamation in a world whose idol is self. Yourself won't do you very good when the judge comes, when the master comes. But that's our proclamation, isn't it? You need to not back down and not compromise from that truth, that the Jesus whom we serve as Lord and master is alive. We don't serve a dead God. There's fact, historical and biblical fact that the tomb was empty. 
And by virtue of the tomb being empty, he is at the right hand of God and he is ruling and reigning right now. He is the master. We look at the world and we think somebody else is in control, right? Satan is kind of having his way a little bit in the world, but ultimately he is not in control. It is God who is in control and Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. He is the master. And that's our proclamation. You must turn and repent and believe in him because the master is one day coming. And when the master comes, he will come and judge you and he will rightly judge you. You will be in the presence of holiness. And if you don't repent and believe, you wish you were dead. You wish you had died before you got there. So now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some of the men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damarius, and others with him. One of the things we can note that when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, him resurrected from the dead, that he is the Lord, he is the master, he is the king, he is also the savior. He's all of those things. He is the greatest thing you could, he is the greatest one you could ever want in your life. But if you don't want him and you won't repent and you won't believe and you won't turn from your sin and you won't turn from self, isn't that the biggest thing that we have to turn from as believers in Jesus? Is us. We have to turn from us to him. We like to be our own rulers and our own masters, don't we? We like to exalt ourselves in a group of people. If you ever sit around with people and you talk with them and sometimes people will sit around and one-up each other as you go around the table. I did this. I do this. I do that. Well, I've been there, and when I went there, I did this and this and this, right? This one-upmanship, because self is so important, right? I want to be thought well of by you, because I think well of myself. I've exalted myself, so you should ought, you ought to join in in the worship of me, right? That is the hard thing for us, and has to be a constant state of repentance, isn't it? To turn from us and turn to him, to let go of us and grab a hold of him. I've said this before, and I'll conclude with this thought that I can't remember who I'm going to quote here, but I think it's Vadi who said, I used to think that being a pastor, I was teaching people how to live, but I've recognized that I have to teach them how to die. That my job is to Teach people how to die. It is by dying to self that we find life in him, right? That's the exchange. Abandoning ourselves and abandoning our life and we find our life in him. The one who is Lord, the one who is master.